I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Today we have something slightly different. As many of you will know, I'm the Vice Chair of the National Association for Primary Education and as part of that I produce a podcast for them which is obviously very specifically for primary education. And recently I had the pleasure of chatting to John Severs who's the editor of TEDS and he was explaining how they've taken their traditional magazine and focused all their content now on a digital format so that it's available and being able to be reactive in this modern age. Now, I thought this would be really interesting for everybody listening because while there was that initial kind of primary education focus, it actually is very relevant for people to think across education in terms of the sorts of things that we cover and and, and the importance of how organisations like TEDS are really supportive for so many people within the education sector. So I hope you enjoy this. This was my conversation with John Severs, who's the editor of TEDS. Hi, John. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. It's always really insightful, I think, for me to sort of hear the voice and the opinions and kind of the personality of people behind organisations and magazines and everything. So, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. No, pleasure to be here. And it's good to be on a, a podcast focused on the primary sector, which doesn't always have the voice it deserves. Yeah, I agree. I think that's why why NAEP specifically feels like it's, uh, it's such an impo- important thing being sort of... Um, non-political and having the chance just to sort of have that child first voice as it were for everyone involved who's in, whether it's a parent whether it's a teacher and everyone else involved in education it's a really really key factor I think so why don't we start with what's your role within within TES and and, and exactly what your remit is to begin with so I became editor of TES in uh, January 2020 um, having the features editor and so for eight years I ran sort of the teaching and learning and the research and a bit of policy for the magazine and when I became editor I then oversaw the whole operation and some people don't realize quite how broad TES is so we have international coverage we have full news coverage we have um, research teaching and learning and a pretty extensive analysis um, team as well so I oversee all that and a bit of a bit of event stuff we get involved with and and a little bit of um podcasting ourselves and yeah it's it's quite a broad remit but I think it's it's varied and it allows me to get a really good overview of the sector and it's interesting um taking the magazine digital it's something that NAEP has been been looking into both in terms of you know what audiences like to do and also obviously there's the practicality and the financial implications of those things so talk us into how that discussion started and and sort of the the progress that that's been made um as we say much really it it began in covid uh for the lockdowns we 
Dean's were going to schools where not all staff were in those schools, or you know, with the with the depleted uh, roles with just the, the just the disadvantaged children in. And not only that, we saw a huge upsurge in the online engagement for our content, and we realised that actually what schools needed was in time information. So they they didn't want to wait till Friday to find the latest news they need for. Uh, let's say the latest COVID regulations for schools or guidance, they needed it then and there. And so as our audience sort of shifted, and I think we worked out by the end of the pandemic, only about 1.5% of our audience were consuming us in print alone. It became a sort of a no brainer decision really to say, okay, how is that print publication functioning as part of our offering? And would our resource be better really putting into getting a new website optimized for uh our users and concentrate on that channel and that's that's what we did launching the website um the start of last the start of this year sorry start of this year and i think i mean everybody's sort of first in first thought when you need any information is obviously the nearest thing to hand which is usually the phone you know or yeah, tablet yeah. or, or wherever, wherever you happen to be um and I think, like I say, when, when you've got sort of updates, when you've got information and you've got the amount of content that you're creating, like I say, having that kind of regular output, I guess that, that kind of changes how you can go about it as well. So just talk us through that sort of the mindset change between, like I say, that regular print output compared to that sort of just-in-time information as, it, as it's happening on a daily basis. Yeah, it's enabled us to be quicker. It's also enabled us to build stories over time. So... Um, we are able to put something out immediately and then we're able to update that same story as the story progresses across a day, two days, three days. And that's important because where we where we want our, our school or our readers to have the most up-to-date view of any topic at that moment. And when you have a piece in print, it sort of stays as it was. It's, it can't be changed. If someone's picking up a magazine two, three weeks later, they're seeing news and thinking that's the latest iteration of that whereas online you're updating those stories so that you do have the latest iteration it does bring challenges as well in the sense that a print magazine is a curated experience and i'm sure most of the listeners don't consume online media in a curated way as such so most homepage traffic for media outlets is pretty low most of the article traffic becomes to articles themselves so we've got to be quite wary about how we knit together news in an online world for our readers. And we're launching a newsletter, a daily newsletter in the next few weeks where we say, okay, your inbox, half six in the morning, seven in the morning, here's everything we published yesterday. Because otherwise, readers are getting a very fragmented experience because they don't like going to a homepage. They prefer to come to a newsletter that's personalized to them or through social i mean the large majority of our traffic comes through social channels because that's how people interact with us i think we've got 300,000 followers on twitter about 150,000 on facebook uh, over 10,000 on instagram this is how readers want to consume us and we need to be reactive to that uh, and so yeah there's there's advantages and there's challenges and that's really interesting that isn't it like you say people 
and it's certainly something that we've found is the sense that people are looking for answers they're looking for solutions they that there's an immediate issue that they're trying to solve um and with that comes that sort of snapshot of kind of like say it'll take you straight to an article or, or it will solve that initial problem but i think when you're involved as an organization like I say when you want a feel of of being part of something which is producing something regularly rather than just that initial thing that's where that sort of problem goes and i can see how the newsletter becomes like a like I say, not a homepage from a website point of view, but an actual home where people can feel like, ah, oh, right, I feel safe here. I kind of know all that information. I know that it's all, like I say, curated into such a way that this is exactly what I need. And so I think you start to interact with everybody, like I say, in different 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 ways then you, you you have the newsletter you have on just the individual articles in and and i guess also now because the communication in the the two-way conversations is something which obviously we didn't have so much a few years ago yeah and the good thing about the newsletter is someone doesn't even have to click on the articles they can get a sense so you'll have some readers who will open that email and they'll get a sense just a re, as you say a reassuring sense of what's happening just from the headlines then you'll have a cohort of readers who want to click on one or two and you'll have a cohort of readers who'll click on every single one and i think the two of the newsletters you say it's that reassurance each morning that you're up to date and then the user themselves creates a bespoke experience by how much they want to engage with it and it leaves it quite democratic whereas the delivery of a big chunky magazine and the guilt sometimes associated I mean, we we quite a few people spoke to us about the tez magazine guilt you know, this pile of magazines they hadn't quite got through yet and this feeling weighing down on them whereas this newsletter that should shoot into your inbox and just give you that quick shot in the morning or whenever you want to engage with it that day is is, is important i think and and talk us through sort of like say that engagement in in multiple sections so i like to say you've i guess you've got the the members of staff or teachers who individually want to have access to this but then you've sort of got schools generally and, and organizations that want to do that and i guess that's where like say that personalized uptake makes a massive difference rather than just oh i came across it because i saw the magazine either because it came to me or it happened to be on the staff room table or whatever that that that, that kind of looked like for people yeah so we've got um i think we've got a cohort of readers who are individual teachers, they tend to be middle or senior leadership in the men. Um, and they're people who are access content for work purposes, usually. Um, they are passing articles to teachers, they're trying to their school improvement plan by putting a bit of weight around it in terms of the research we provide. And and some of them do it for pleasure, like they just want to be engaging every day with the latest research and the latest news. We then have sort of a school function where schools take mem um, readerships uh, subscriptions for the magazine and, and that tends to be a head teacher or SLT and they're using it for their own CPD, but also using for the, the CPD the school feeds into uh, internal newsletters, it feeds into uh, staff development meetings, it, it feeds into uh, planning meetings for the future. And that's how you can begin to see how the policy elements and the uh, learning elements and the analysis is really important. So we have three teams, uh, editorial teams, which is the news team who are telling you what's going on. So that's policy, regulatory stuff around Ofsted, uh, exams, you know, just the stuff that's most integral to schools. And then we have our analysis team who then goes, okay, what does this mean? And why do you need to know about it? Which is, you know, let's say, 
Ofqual changes a regulation, that's the news piece. And then the analysis team will take that and go, okay, this is how it's going to impact your school in the next few weeks or the next few months or the next couple of years. And this is why it's important that you look at this. And this is some advice about what you can do. So those two working quite close tandem. And then you have the teaching and learning team who are doing the more traditional test stuff that I used to do, which is here's some research about this element of teaching and learning. Here's so how what someone's tried in that area, or here's what here's what this research suggests is the best way of mentoring a new for example. And it's it's very practical. So those three areas are sort of there are grey areas in between each one, but we like to think of it as a natural progression where, you know, we've got you covered however deep you want to go into those topics. Yeah, and that makes sense. And and it continues on, you know, perfectly from what you said in terms of how people come to the magazine now as well because like I say if you're just interested in what's going on as opposed to like I say having that sort of CPD kind of focus and and, and and curating it for people and I think especially the research side and and the comment side based on sort of real understanding and and because things are changing so much and as we know there's sort of being time poor so much in schools as well I think having something which is a real critical eye but also like I say with the the authority of saying actually I know that <laughs> what, what I'm reading what I'm able to to comprehend from this is something which I can really trust and then i can dive into it as and when it's important to me yeah we've had um, a piece from dylan william over the weekend a big interview with him around assessment and what his vision for assessment would be based a little bit on his his and paul black's work around formative assessment but also how he viewed the impact of the pandemic and how he viewed statutory um assessment but the interesting thing there was how people what people took from it so some people wanted the policy debate and they had it some people wanted the practical school level okay what do we do with this at school some people just, were just interested in assessment at a classroom level and some people love dylan william for, to put it bluntly and just wanted to talk about that and so we saw all these suddenly from that one article you saw all these satellite conversations happening across social media be that on facebook twitter instagram um even in some of the sort of teachery forum type things from some of the organizations and i think we're doing our job properly if we're enabling the space for people to to come at that content in their own way. It's particularly important around best practice stuff we do. So we had a really interesting piece about someone had tackled spelling in Key Stage 2 and how they would built a, a new spelling sort of approach. Um, that generated some really interesting discussion because there were literacy leads in primary coming to, to, to look at that and saying, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. It was all very civil, actually. I mean, social media gets a bit of a bit of a bad rap for being this like hellhole of animosity. But actually, teachers in the main, really productive conversations were happening around that. And it wasn't, the person who wrote it wasn't saying, this is how you should do it. This was a teacher saying, this is what I've tried and this is the outcome. And it may only be specific to my context, but I'm just sharing. And that sharing element, I think, done in the right way, is really productive for for our readers and i think that's a really important point isn't it because i think more and more within schools we want the the autonomy to be able to do what's best for us what's best for our for our pupils what's best for our school or or the or the wider community and so therefore you're going to have different outlooks and, and different ways of doing things and i think having access to that sort of those broad ideas which you can pick and choose and, and then bring that in is really important but I guess because so much of what's prescriptive that's kind of where you get some of the animosity sometimes because people are sort of thinking no but it needs to be like this and I, I have the answer which seems to be the way it should be yeah I mean so much of the uh, DFE stuff we report on is 
stop telling me how to teach. And I think sometimes that's legit. I think sometimes the DFE is being too prescriptive, but sometimes it's just guidance. And I think, um, I think we're very sensitive in how we present our content to always make it look like, here's an idea. What do you think? Even with the research stuff, because we're also always very careful to ask the research what the caveats are. So, you know, it's very easy to say study finds that, I don't know, uh, intervention for literacy at the age of four produces great results at year six. And then we say, OK, what's the caveat to this research? Please, could you like give us an outline? Oh, it was done in four schools in central London. OK, well, it's not the biggest pool size and it's a London context rather than say, I don't know, I live in Portsmouth. So Portsmouth, even hour and a half from London, is still very, very different to the London context, you know demographically regionally funding in funding terms and uh, I think if we're honest and transparent about what we're reporting then it allows teachers the space to to feel comfortable consuming that content whereas I think if it was reported in a didactive way you're going to get a a a very um binary reaction to it from a teacher as I would if someone told me how to do journalism I'd be like well I know best actually, or I, if, if it was a, along my ideology, I'd be like, this is the best piece of journalism. Yeah, this advice is perfect. But if it was against my ideology, it would be, well, this is just rubbish. Whereas if we take a bit more of a caveated approach, we can have a bit more interesting discussion. 1910 is a long time ago when, when sort of it all sort of started and, and got going. So, I mean, in terms of your, your knowledge of that history, but also in terms of the amount of time that you spent there, how have you seen seen things change um i guess both positively and negatively but in the sort of that sort of historical kind of feeling of, of what you're trying to produce but also that they'd like to say as we've talked already about the reality of the practical interactions as well i think the core role of tez has always been the same which is to be a professional voice to the sector i think how that is um is is rolled out is very different so it was very top down it was very much you know we're a magazine to tell teachers what to do if you look at the archives from the sort of 1910 and 11 onwards it was a publication of about teaching and about education and i think the shift that's happened in the last 20 years it's become a publication for teachers and by teachers which i think is a really important distinction because when you have something that's too top down it doesn't resonate and it's not useful and i think the shift that I've done since I came in 18 months ago is to really accelerate that and say, okay, everything we do that is not useful to a teacher, stop doing it because it's just a distraction. What we need to do is use our time to really understand the school context and use our time to make the best possible use uh, product. A good example is the keeping children safe in education article we did about about two weeks ago now three weeks ago so the new guidance came out it's a huge document a good use of our time for that was to go through find out what had changed find out the key points that would be most difficult write that into a really nice consumable article that people could share and over one weekend i think it got close to a hundred thousand uh views from the teaching community and some really positive comments and it's still being read now and i think that story might not have got done 15 years ago 10 years ago even because well, they've got they've got it in the guidance. Why would they need us to do it again? This isn't a story. And I, I've got, I'm a big believer in sort of citizen journalism. And by that mean, not journalism by citizens, but journalism for citizens, where you do take complex documents and crunch them in a responsible way. And so I believe in that type of journalism. And 
thankfully in the last 18 months we've seen it really pay off and and you talk there in terms of of that approach of who you're doing it for and who's actually involved creating it so is there those sort of opportunities like you say from sort of a, a teacher input or people working within within the profession to kind of get their voice out and how, how does that work within that vision that you just spoke about so the news team are all internally produce content so they're specialist news reporters and you know we wouldn't have sort of citizen news reporters if you like or teacher news reporters but the analysis team and the features team are in the main commissioning editors so what they do is 60 70 probably up to 80 percent of their coverage is is commissioning teachers and people in education to to write to react to provide best practice guides and it's it's a struggle sometimes to find primary representation so we, what we find and this may not surprise our your primary listeners is that secondary are very they're not shy in coming forward so we have lots of um secondary teachers saying i'd like to write or secondary head teachers i'd like to do this and for primary it's a bit more proactive on our side we're going out more and finding people to write because there just isn't that supply of teachers what we'd love is to have you know any in the main it'd be really nice to have more middle leadership in primary writing for us so your literacy leads your numeracy leads your safeguarding leads we'd love those people to get in touch with us and and with dan so it's dan.worth at tes.com and helen amas which is helen.amas at tes.com uh, you can find them on twitter they are always up for ideas they really want to hear what you're struggling with and the best way of pitching something is to send them and say look i had this problem on x and I did why, and it worked or it didn't work. And we're as interested in the didn't work as the did work. And that's a great way for Helen to say, okay, that's interesting, we can put that out. And for Dan, it's like, let's say you're a literacy lead and you're upset at the latest Ofsted uh, English guidance uh, subject review. He'd love to hear from you and say, you know what, I've, I've just looked at this, this is completely irrelevant to my daily working life. And here's why, and here's what it should have said. That's that's really good thing for us as well. but. At the moment, we're having to proactively go out and find those people to write. And it'd be really nice to have some more voices, particularly Key Stage 1. Um, I think was a, we, we do all right in EYFS and we've got quite a healthy supply of Year 6, although we would need more for both. But Key Stage 1 is a real area where we could do with a bit more uh, more people coming forward. So if you're listening and you've actually already written for the for primary first, our, our NAPES journal, then um, there you are. There's your, there's your next article to be able to, yeah, to yeah. get involved and, and, and to go in. Um, I suppose we should also talk about the fact that, you know, such an audience in terms of, of the amount of people, where people live and that kind of thing. So talk, talk about that sort of breadth of, of, of what you cover in terms of sort of geographically as well as the actual content itself. Yeah, so we have uh, dedicated reporters in Scotland who cover Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. We have John Roberts, our, our senior reporter. He's based in um, the North East. Um, we cover the whole of the UK area. Uh, then we have Dan, who's the analysis editor, who's also our international editor. So he covers all international schools as well. In terms of teaching and learning, Helen Amas, who runs that section, she covers research from all over the world. So we've had Spanish, American, Japanese. Um, we had a Russian piece as well. So we we are looking around the world to see what, what what's happening. For example, in Russia, you're not allowed to wear your shoes in the school. You have to swap for school slippers. And 
there's a guy in Bournemouth who's done some research on this called Stephen Heppel, who found that barefoot learning was massively uh, was massively useful to pupils and create especially in primary and all the usual caveats applied but just having that little look and the little jolt of a different idea from a different system really gets conversations started and so all the teams really have a remit of saying okay what ideas yeah a classroom is a classroom wherever you are in the world and we've had classrooms on boats in Bangladesh or classrooms in donut shaped schools in Japan and but the, the fundamentals are the same yeah you're teaching kids stuff and what are people doing in different ways that could spur an idea in a teacher in this country? And I think that's really important to keep your head up because under the stress and strain of a school system, it's easy to get your head down. And our job is to provide that outward look in a way that isn't too onerous on the individual teacher. And I think what you mentioned there's really, really important in terms of there are things that we can change and we can change quite quickly, you know, in like say bringing all that information from different areas. It's not always about how you're teaching any given subject or the system itself, but just even opening that conversation. And, and I've spoken to Stephen before as well in terms of environments within schools and just even having those conversations just oh, right, I hadn't quite thought of it like that. And, you know, this person sitting in this part of the classroom compared to that, I like to say, or having having shoes on inside or not, or, or how that works. And I think that must open one a debate within your school, but it's a fantastic thing to be able to have that communication with your pupils as well. Yeah, and I think it's... Um, some of this stuff sounds balmy, right, when you, when you first look at it and you think, oh, that can't have an impact. And then people try stuff and they go, do you know what? It actually made a, a difference. I remember my sister, who's a primary teacher, she did a, what she was part of the EF growth mindset trial. And I remember her talking to me about startup growth mindsets and going to do anything. And then she works in a very, very deprived area of Hampshire. And by the end of it, she was just like, you wouldn't believe just how much impact this, this little thing has made. And she said, I would have completely, if I wasn't part of the trial, I'd have written it off. And I think our our remit as TES is to get more people to take a chance and to try something while acknowledging that the system as it is doesn't necessarily promote risk-taking. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and how, how do you find that in terms of, like, say, the system is what it is and it's, you know, everyone's working within it, but in terms of what you think, I guess influence isn't necessarily the right word, but in terms of comment, in terms of how it may progress in the future and also how people can sort of work within it for, like I say, the, those positive situations, comments, articles, which come through. I think the, um, in terms of our influence over that, I think it's important that it's the teacher influence. So if we get the right blend of comment and we're really keen, like we are not political, we are not ideological. So we want, a really broad range of opinion but out of that you can still get a consensus direction of travel and I think it's really important for example on let's say the, the role of cognitive science in education which is heavily pushed by the government and is leading to some quite prescriptive teaching guidance I think it's important that at TES we've challenged that um, position and through our pro writers on COGSI and our more critical writers of COGSI we've got a really nice position now where we're saying, do you know, there's some really good stuff here, but actually we need to be really cautious about how we use it. And I think that that is where the influence comes because we're the voice of the sector. I think it's, I think in general, teachers want to be left alone in terms of teachers know their, their, their classrooms the best. They know 
their pupils the best and are what we should be doing is helping them achieve their goals within that context and i think if if a government or ofsted or whoever else wants to influence what happens in the school in a positive way then they need to start from that position which is a teacher knows that classroom best so what are you doing to maximize the potential in that classroom rather than what are you doing to maximize your particular ideology at any time is is my view and what's your sense of of how things will progress in in, in sort of the the near sort of me- medium term do you think that we're at a tipping point in 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 any particular area that that people will be interested in i think it's clear that the government wants a sort of whole career CPD agenda. So they want a bit of a medical model where a teacher's constantly progressing throughout their career. It's not just this, I've done my ITT, I'm not going to leadership and I'm I'm a teacher now. And I think there's positives there. I think most teachers want to improve and they want to do consistent CPD across their career. What I don't think they want is to be told specifically what that looks like. And I think what we're heading for at the moment is a very controlled system. So, you know, if you if you add up all the different elements of policy that have come out in the last two or three years and COVID sort of accelerated this because it gave government a hell of a lot of control centrally, what you're looking at is a, is, is a very prescribed profession. And it's very anti-conservative, which is why you're getting in the Lords at the moment some Tory peers saying, hang on a minute, there's, this is what's going on here. We, you know, we want decentralisation, yet this seems very centralised. And ironically, you talk to the Labour education team and they're very much keen on teacher autonomy. It's sort of like a swapped <laughs> political ideology almost. But I think, you know, if, we, if we're looking at the direction of travel, it, it does look like more control. And I think if you look at the stats around teacher well-being, if you look at the retention stats, if you look at why people leave, I think it's quite clear that people want to be trusted to do their job. And I think the more that is prescribed, which is happening, the less likely people are to stay. And I think that's a really dangerous situation we're heading towards that needs to be pretty urgently redressed. Because I guess we are going to very soon get to the point, not only is there going to be teacher shortages, but we're also going to have not the the depth of understanding, um, I guess, if you have a very young workforce or or it's not quite as sort of reflective across every age group, then what happens is is you only know what you know, which comes from your training, but also comes from your experience. It might have been you you, you were in school yourself not that long ago. And it's only with wisdom, which I guess comes with experience and and the amount of years you've been in the profession that you kind of can see that overall idea of, we can see where it's going now, but we've seen maybe we've been there before or maybe we want to to look at it in this particular way. And I guess the more people leave earlier then you 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 just don't have that and and i think that could be very dangerous yeah i mean we have one of the youngest professions in the world already at 37 i think is the average age the school workforce census came out last week and if you look at the uh the biggest drop off of teachers it's in that sort of seven to 12 years into a career stage where teachers are leaving and like you say if you've got the experience you know you can be taught everything in the world but applications are a hell of a different thing and not only does does knowing how stuff lands and knowing how to react to a class important experience is important in terms of confidence and being able to pick and choose a bit i mean we talked about prescription 
And I think people who've been around a lot longer than me will say government's always been prescriptive in one way or another. What the difference is, is how much a school on a day-to-day -day level listens and how much they work within that prescription to do what they want and what they think is best for the kids. And I think the more you skew to a younger age group who hasn't got the experience to say, like you say, I've seen this before, don't worry about it. Or, yeah, yeah it says that, but we can get away with this. I think you're going to see a, a degradation of the profession, professional standards, if you like, and autonomy because this, the profession skews too too young. And I really like to see some of those teachers, like my mum taught reception for 40 years, you know, she was a brilliant reception teacher uh, and before she retired. And I think, you know, by the end, watching how she reacted, you know, all that experience you could see. And it was, I think we're in danger with the funding crisis. We're in danger with the, the way budgets are working out with um, energy funding and other costs of, I mean, you can see it in some of the data. Schools are skewing to cheaper, younger teachers. And I think that would be real, real detriment, not just to the kids, but to those young teachers, because if they don't have those experienced role models to help to guide them, you know, we're really doing them a disservice and they're not going to be able to pass that on for the next generation. Yeah, and I guess we should probably touch on on money and, and the financial situation. You know, budgets have been tight for a long time now, but, you know, as we're recording this, you know, there's, uh, there's real strikes about to happen. There's been talk in the media today in terms of teachers and NHS workers and do, do you think this is going to be a problem which actually does involve children either having to stay at home or, or schools actually, even sort of despite the, the COVID and pandemic and, and wanting to do the best for their children, that we may end up with a situation where schools may be closing for these financial reasons? I think schools are in a really tricky position at the moment. The level of outgoings not matching the level of incoming. Um, and as a head teacher. You know, I talk to some of these head teachers and they're saying, well, I've cut every year for three years now and there's nothing left to cut. And I think at that point, there's some really difficult decisions to be made. And I think NHT, ASCL, NEU, NAST have a really difficult balancing act because of the, the COVID pandemic, because of the disruption to learning, because of the parent parents' views about how to react to that situation. And I think it's a very delicate relationship with parents and, and communities in general. And I think they, you know, it's a bit like the, the campaign a couple of years ago that really um, showcased the individual financial struggles of individual schools. I think that's where you need to go. Parents need to be more aware that the funding crisis having, is having a direct impact on their child rather than education generally i think education generally is a really dangerous message to go down i think this is how it's impacting your local school is much more powerful and much and you'd hope that the situation can be resolved without further disruption but i think that's one for the unions to to try and try and work out and i think that's a really positive point there is that actually the only thing you can actually do is what you can do yourself and that might be like say getting information about how your school is working and, and its situation it might also be about how your life as a parent as someone who's working and and being involved in the community can actually help um and, and that's not necessarily a, even a financial thing but in terms of if you want the your 
son or daughter's classroom to look different in some way you know what do you have to offer you know what uh, advice do you have you know what are the skill sets you have who are the people that you work with what are the organizations that you work with that can actually sort of give teachers and schools and uh, that immediate direct access whether it fits in with part of the curriculum they're doing or, or days where they're able to sort of have a conversation with someone they wouldn't normally do and i think some of that can be financial but some of it can just be the having that initial conversation and saying how can we actually have a positive influence based on on what you need within the school yeah i think you know we need to get back to don't we like what you've just described there is a is a real community school and and i think I guess in in I guess primaries have been pretty good at that more than secondary in the sense that primaries are because of the smaller numbers are very good at being a community school but we could do more and a lot of the onus on that has to be on the communities rather than the school we have to be proud of our local schools and we have to want to help whether our kids are there or not and a lot of the time local school is helped by the parents and then you know we've moved on so we don't really that school's not on our radar anymore but we're still living in that community and that that school should still be part of our our lives in secondaries when you've got secondaries going up to sort of 14 15 form entry which some of them are now i mean it's very 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 difficult on that side to create that sense of community and i, I don't think it's a very a huge surprise that the most successful free schools that the government promotes consistently are a maximum of around four form entry they're more like primary schools and secondary schools and because it's easier to create that sense of community so i think there's a huge amount of learning for the system to look more closely at primary schools and say okay what do they do really well and i don't think that happens because primary is sort of it's just you know so frequently not talked about at government levels it's so frequently secondary that becomes the focus and then oh we, we'll just filter that down to primary well can we not filter stuff up and i think that's something that this does need to change yeah and it's certainly something that neighbors really keen on is the fact that any given day any given part of a child's education is important it's not just preparation for the future and i think that's where primary often gets into trouble in terms of not having those conversations is because it's just they're getting ready for secondary school and 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 actually like I say, the way that you work, the way that you interact and and actually just giving the child the environment they need at the time that they have it is, is really key. And I think that actually isn't just about being in an age group up to age 11. It's actually about children and, and humans generally, you know, having what you need at any given time into that kind of, like I said before, in terms of that well-being and mindset and growth mindset and all those things. Some of those things are the same across the board. It's not just a necessarily age age specific. Um, so, so just as, as we wrap up tell us you know you, you mentioned before about what you've tried to to push it and, and and develop things in the last 18 months or so what will that look like sort of in another 18 months or, or two years in terms of, of what you're able to implement well what a question so i hope that in in 18 months time every school will see us as an integral part of their daily mission so that may, that means that if the teacher has a problem, then turn to Tez. If the subject lead, the 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 T have a problem, turn to Tez. If the head, executive head, Matt CEO, governors have a problem, they can come to Tez. And that doesn't necessarily mean doing more content for us. It means making better choices and presenting that content in better ways. And what we're really keen to do at the moment is made a big shift of of direction. And the next 18 months is honing that with the feedback from our readers to make sure that we are 
that, that useful tool. I mean, what we like to say is on any given week, what have we done for each teacher? And we have each teacher in each phase in our mind saying, okay, this is this type of teacher. That's that phase leader. That's that leadership position. Have we done anything for them today? And that should expand our, you know, for example, we've traditionally not been good in special schools. Like we haven't got great coverage in special schools. Well, we should have, you know, traditionally we haven't had great key stage one coverage. Like I spoke about at the start because it's more, more key stage two and EYFF teachers are more proactive so that we know more about it. But we're, I'd love to know more about key stage one. My kids are in key stage one at the moment. So I'm like, you know, I'm getting first-hand experience, but so that in 18 months, I'd like to be much more comprehensively covered in terms of our content and much have much more comprehensive readership that is coming to us every week because we are a trusted source of information. Fantastic. Well, John, thank you so much for spending your time and, and giving us sort of behind the scene, scenes look of everything. And, and like I say, that sort of call to arms and for key stage one teachers, but also anyone who'd, who'd like to sort of get involved and know more, tell tell them the, the, the best place to go. And we'll have this on the show notes as well, but the best place for them to sort of go, get involved or get in touch. So I think the first, we, we are preparing a contact sheet, which I'll make sure I send over when it's ready so that people, you can send that out. But for the moment, the best two people, and I'll spell it out, is Dan, so it's D-A-N dot worth, W-O-R-T-H at tes.com, T-E-S.com, and Helen Amas, that's H-E-L-E-N dot A-M-A-S-S at tes.com. First instance, you know, just a paragraph to say, here's, I'm this person, this is what I've tried, or this is what I'd like to write about, or this is annoying me at the moment. They're the three things I usually say to people who are pitching for the first time. What's annoying you? Tell us. What have you tried and it's been good? Tell us. And what have you tried and it's failed? And the chances are one of those three things will catch the eye of one of our editors and you'll, you'll be commissioned before you know it. Fantastic. Well, John, thanks so much for being here. It's it's fascinating and, and I love, it's why I love podcasting so much to get that real sort of personality and idea and, and, and the sense of, of, of what people are doing behind the, the printed words or, or like you say, the, the, the click on a, on a phone. So yeah, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.